Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. We've been digging into stories about Jesus's interactions with women. We've seen the way he's torn down barriers and shattered expectations of religious leaders. So this week, we're looking at how this continued through the end of Jesus's life and his death and resurrection. We'll look at the devotion of his female disciples and the revolutionary way Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection. Let's dig in. It's been really fun to dig into some of these stories about Jesus and the way that he interacted with women. And it certainly hasn't been an exhaustive list of Jesus's interactions with women, but we've looked at a few significant moments and we're definitely catching the idea that Jesus is not living by the standards that other religious leaders of his time would have. And we'll continue to see this as we look at the end of his life. So I, I love highlighting this aspect because I think it's easy for us to miss, but for original people who would have been experiencing this in real time, and certainly those who would have been hearing this story, this, it would have stuck out to them in ways that I think are easy for us to miss. And so I'm excited to uncover some of that today. Yeah, same. And as we are thinking about and talking about women at the tomb and Jesus appearing to women. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, I think in I've started hearing more about that maybe in the last 10 years of I think more mm -hmm. Christian preaching and teaching has been emphasizing this, which I think is awesome. I will say that I've mostly heard it in the context of apologetics of hmm. here's how we know that Jesus for sure rose from the dead, that this would be an unconventional way you would do it. And so if you were faking a story, you wouldn't choose to do it that way. And I think that's a perfectly fine and help and helpful and true insight. I think it still removes women from the story in terms of valuing women. And it almost in a way is like, yeah, I mean, women are like not really that important. So <laughs> if you, this is like weird that you would do it this way rather than saying, this is a way that it's, Jesus is showing this is real. This isn't a fabricated story. And it's also affirming and empowering women. So I definitely think it can be both. And I'm excited to make it both today. Yeah, that's so true. It comes out basically like Jesus's underhand compliment or something to women. It's like, you're pretty terrible, but I'll like reveal myself to you. Like, I mean, no one else cares about you, but. <laughs> so yeah, we do not think that that is what's happening here. And so, yeah, I am excited to see that one note. Um, there's so many ways that this is revealed in all of the different gospels. And so you'll hear us pulling in like, and Mark says it this way, or, and the women are named in a particular way in Matthew. Um, and I think that's fun because it show it actually does show that even the gospels that aren't typically like uh, focused on including women all include aspects of this. And so you'll just hear us pull those um, details in and I hope it kind of strikes a curiosity to see and that some of you would go back and reread this and each of the gospels and see how each of them kind of interprets the story and, um, and draws out different aspects of it. It does make me think of one year when I was in youth ministry and we were reading different aspects of the gospels and a student said, this guy has died like three different times. And because um, they did not understand that we were reading the same story from three different perspectives. <laughs> so um, it, precious way of experiencing the newness <laughs> of the story. <laughs> um, so we are, they're all telling the same story uh, from different kind of highlighting different aspects of it. So just as you hear us um, doing that, I think more than anything, we're trying to emphasize how prevalent this is in the way that the gospel writers make sure that we're understanding the story. Yeah, that's really good. And that is so sweet to, yeah, kind of see it from like new eyes. Um, <laughs> and a note about that of 
the differences, the synoptic gospels is the way that people will describe the, the really like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John can kind of be a wild card. Um, but that people have often seen it as, oh, there were contradictions in the narrative somehow if they don't align perfectly. And so just to make kind of an interpretive scholarly note about that, that relates to our discussion today is that in general, they are written for different audiences. And so different writers are emphasizing different things that would matter to their readers. And that would cause the story to resonate, that would cause it to be impactful, that would allow them to connect with it from their own perspective, which I think is showing just God's desire to meet us and to reveal himself to us in a way we can understand. So rather than being contradictions or somehow like they don't line up, it's just showing, I think, God being personal and wanting people to be able to connect with it in a way that is meaningful. And therefore, I think it's all the more interesting that women are mentioned in all of them because it's saying like, hey, for everybody, this is important. It's not just Luke's gospel, for example, that is geared more towards women or people on the margins that all of all readers, wherever you're coming from, this is key and really needs to be highlighted. So I think that's actually really significant and a major just elevation that God is doing to say the, the importance of women isn't just for some people reading the Bible. It's for everybody reading the Bible. Right. Yeah. So we're going to dig in here to the story and we're going to start at the anointing of Jesus. So um, we're not going to reread this story because we did cover it two episodes back in our episode about Mary, where we covered Mary and Martha um, as one of the stories. And so that what we do want to say is that this is a part of this narrative. I think we've said a few times here how often we separate these stories from one another and we uh, kind of dislocate them from the full narrative of scripture. And so because of that, I really want us to see that as a part of this narrative of what's happening within the passion story. Um, and so I think the more we see that there are women included really from beginning to the end of this story. I think the more we see how much God is emphasizing that. And so we see here this dinner party where Mary is anointing Jesus and Jesus says, like Jesus knows exactly what she's doing, that he sees it as Mary anointing him for his death. And so we, we unpacked a lot of aspects of that. But one thing that I don't think we emphasized really, because we were so focused on the, the worship aspect is that this is a bit of authority that Mary is exercising here. You would not anoint someone outside of like an authoritative role. And Jesus submits himself to that and affirms her. And in fact, silences any voices of indignation around it. Um, and I think even clarifies what's happening, that this is really important. And I would even say there's reasons that I would interpret that as like a priestly role that she has there of anointing him. And so I think it's so powerful that from the beginning of this um, movement towards the cross, that Jesus is submitting himself to the ministry of a woman. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting insight. I've never thought about that before. Because I, I think, Jamie, you are more familiar with the practice of anointing than I, I might be. So I, so I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. So it seems like in the New Testament, like even in the book of James, there's more of an exhortation for Christians to anoint one another. Um, but my understanding would be that in the Old Testament, it wouldn't have been just lay people essentially anointing one another, that it would have been a priestly role at that time. Is that how you've understood it? Yeah, I think that's a good distinction of like, um, like you said, in James in particular, and a couple other uh, letters to the early church, there's, you know, other leaders, but definitely in the time that Jesus 
was ministering, I think that would have been reserved for a priestly, um, a priestly role. So I think, I think it's pretty compelling that she -hmm. does that and that where she, maybe she wasn't even fully aware of what she was doing on some level. I think Jesus almost offers more dignity to it and gives even more authority than perhaps she was originally asserting. I think there's still a lot of authority that she is asserting on her own to come into this dinner party and do this. But either way, Jesus is almost the one who offers even more so by saying like, this is to prepare me for my death. Yeah. Yeah. And as I'm just now recalling where anointing is used in the old Testament, for sure, a major place it's used is for anointing Kings. And so perhaps the most famous is when Hannah's son, Samuel, the prophet anoints David as King. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, a coronation really like it was a godly coronation of saying this is god calling you to this royal office and so yeah i think that's powerful that mary is acting in the legacy of the prophets <laughs> to anoint mm-hmm. jesus as a king which he is and like you said that i think perhaps she didn't fully understand that likely she couldn't have fully understood what that meant but that she's responding to just the glory of Christ and the authority of Christ in a way that she understands in her culture and in her religious tradition. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) That's actually very appropriate. Yeah. I think of it almost like a commissioning too, because we, Mm -hmm. we see priests anointed with oil as well. Um, And so she's, it's this way of seeing the different roles that Jesus has of priest King. And so I think yeah, it's like a commissioning into this next phase of his ministry almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's fire, Jamie. I love that. So I think that's an important piece for us. It's so easy to miss that just in general, but I think to see it as a whole of the narrative of Jesus coming into the death and resurrection and that this begins the emphasis of women playing a crucial part of the story in this way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And what, just one other thing about it is that no one's done this until now. (laughs) And so like, like his disciples haven't, his male disciples haven't. Um, If anything, maybe the closest thing is that he's baptized by John and then receives the Holy spirit or like the Holy spirit is like visible at that Mm -hmm. point so in some ways that's a spiritual anointing but yeah this is fascinating that none of his male disciples thought to do this yet and mary who's a woman is like jesus is worthy of this this is something that makes total sense i'm just gonna do it because no one has yeah it's really powerful and i i think it's interesting now that you're saying that I'm thinking of all the moments where like it would have been appropriate for them to do that so I'm thinking about like when Jesus is like who do you say that I am and they recognize him as the Christ and that it doesn't fully click for them even still in those moments and so yeah I think Mary is playing this really significant role of identifying both who Jesus is and commissioning him into a next phase of ministry. So, um, and then we see, uh, we're skipping ahead a little bit into the crucifixion. And so we'll just, um, have Heather read parts of that. So this is going to be from Luke. And so again, we, we see this in all these, all the gospels are writing about the crucifixion, but we're going to read it out of Luke. Yes, so I'll be reading Luke 23, verses 44 through 56, and I'll read from NIV. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. 
But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So much there. Um, a few things I want to just highlight in terms of like the cultural pieces at play here. So the preparation day and the Sabbath beginning, that is a huge deal. And that's part of why Joseph um, asks, can we have his body? Because we want to make sure that he's in the tomb before the Sabbath. So to me, this just shows the devotion of people to walk in the ways of God. Um, But at sundown, there would be the beginning of the Sabbath. So this would be no work at all. And we see um, kind of the ways that Jesus himself got into trouble a little bit for breaking some of those rules. But we see that his followers are definitely wanting to be obedient to rest and to get everything done. So the women are like seeing where he's laid and then rushing into the market probably to like grab everything they need for the spices and perfumes to anoint him um and then we'll kind of highlight this point of the curtain of the temple torn into and other gospels make it super clear that um that's from top to bottom and so there's no way that that could have been done and if you spend some time reading what that curtain was made out of this is not like a simple little cloth that you could tear. This was certainly an act of God. And we see how quickly someone, you know, realizes, oh my gosh, no one could do this. And so that curtain would have been the place in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the other parts of the temple. So this is where the presence of God is kind of housed and where, um, only the high priest would enter. And so this curtain being torn is a huge invitation for the people of God to enter in to the place where God's presence is. And, um, and so we see like that physical representation of the separation of people in the presence of God torn from the top to the bottom. And, um, so if you aren't familiar with temple practices I think it's easy to kind of be like what what is the deal with the curtain there and just easy to pass by it Um, but this is very significant and really powerful Um, and I think it's worth highlighting that for women women have never entered the holy of holies up to this point and so the curtain being torn is a particular invitation for women for gentiles um really for for so many people who would not have had permission to enter into that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good, Jamie. I, I think that's so important that you're highlighting the reality of like, in general, this means that God's presence is now with all believers. And I've heard that talked about quite a bit. And I, I don't think that we often talk about what that means for people who weren't present before. (laughs) Um, Like in a way we focus more on like now God's spirit isn't just in one geographic location, which is also again, true and beautiful and powerful that now the presence of God is wherever his people are. Um, But yeah, that means people who had no way of being in the presence of God now have his spirit dwelling within us, which includes women and Gentiles. So yeah, I love that you highlighted that application because perhaps as just modern Western Christians, we can kind of take that for granted. 
I'm like, oh yeah, we've always just had the Holy Spirit and any of us can be in communion with God through his spirit. But yeah, but no, <laughs> that wasn't always the case. And this is a huge paradigm shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy for us to like miss that, but you know, there's so many worship songs that kind of use the language of Jesus making a way. And I just, I love singing those songs because for me, there's a particularity to that as a woman that I recognize the way that Jesus has brought liberation in a really particular way. Um, so a couple other things to note from here. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about this in Matthew, when he's talking about this, this is where it says, um, so in Luke, he says, and the women who were following him were stood at a distance watching these things. Matthew identifies them as the women who ministered to Jesus. So I just think that's really important. Um, you can look at that in Matthew 27, 55. Um, but in general, I think what we see from these female disciples is a devotion to Jesus that is really unique. In fact, I'll often hear people say during like Good Friday or Easter sermons, like all of Jesus's friends left him. And that's, that's just not accurate. Um, first of all, John was there because in the gospel of John, this is where we have, uh, Jesus commending John and Mary to one another. Um, and, but also the female disciples were all still there. And I think there's something to highlight there about the devotion of these women to Jesus. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Man, that just is yet another illustration of how when women are there, people are like, but I mean, you don't really count. Like, of course you'd be here. That's not special. <laughs> and again, like how we fail to see, to appreciate the cost that yes. women have to count in order to show up and be present and that it would have been dangerous to be associated with Jesus and that they're just like, we don't care. Like that's a cost that we're willing to count and potentially willing to pay in order to support him and be near him and care for him, even in his death and after his death. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that I'm glad that you're reminding us to name that and highlight that because yeah, otherwise we're like, uh, everyone was gone. <laughs> I mean, I guess a few ladies were hanging around, but <laughs> that's not special. <laughs> Right. It's, it's really wild how often that's the narrative. And I think it, there is an accuracy to understanding, like a lot of the disciples were scared. They ran away, but it wasn't all of them. And I think it really shows how much we don't understand these women as being disciples and friends of Jesus and really points to like our paradigm that of course they would have been just kind of peripheral to the ministry rather than a significant part of it. Mm -hmm. um so again in john we have jesus saying to john um and to his mother like this is your son now um and this is your mother now and i think just again it's important because of how often we've heard that jesus was like dismissive towards his mom to say that he did that like in, in agony, like he's in the experience of dying on the cross and he is attentive in this way to the needs of his family. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and just important to note. And I think, um, something that stuck out to me this time reading through all of this was, just that way that we do dismiss women being there, but that it seems like, like Jesus literally would have made eye contact with those women, um, who are sitting by his mom and who are, you know, sitting there as he's saying to his mom, like, this is your son now. And so it's so easy for us to dismiss their devotion, but like for me to think about Jesus is like locking eyes with these women who will not leave his side. 
and how like even though it's so easy for um traditional like white male theologians to just dismiss that aspect of the story that Jesus is so attentive to the devotion of these women and that um that he sees it and that he cannot dismiss us even when other people would and wow yeah that that picture for me of like oh wow he that probably means for him to have a conversation with Mary and John means that he probably like locked eyes with these women from the cross and that picture is just so incredible yeah I'm like super emotional with you Jamie because I'm thinking about that idea of you know being seen by him being close to him as he's dying in front of you and the trauma that that is for them obviously it is for Jesus and we talk about that a lot and rightly so that's also deeply traumatic to watch someone that you love die in front of you um yeah that's it's horrifying I mean it's your worst case scenario especially for his mom um and so just the fact that they don't turn away from that that they don't kind of choose themselves or their own comfort or relief but that they stay like even though it costs like this is horrifying for me and gut-wrenching for me it's worth it to be close to you because i know it's even worse for you jesus that is such a i think profound emotional sacrifice that i don't think we ever really <laughs> highlight or talk about mm -hmm. of what it cost them emotionally and like in ptsd later i mean mm -hmm. like those are images and moments that they carry with them for the rest of their lives and i think they i would hope and i assume experience healing through the course of his resurrection and i think i want us to keep this trauma in mind as we think about in these next passages christ appearing to them and mm -hmm. the deeper significance that i think would have carried for the dramatic before and after essentially um but yeah any of us who are listening i I think any of us have some forms of trauma in our lives, some very deep. And so to think about carrying that, those images, that grief, that pain for the rest of your life, that's not a small thing. And I think, yeah, it's such clear commitment and selflessness of, I want Jesus to know I'm here. I don't want him to be alone, even though like, this is awful for me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's there's so many things for me. But I think that's part of why several gospel writers and why God made sure to take note of the fact that like they experience that trauma, they watch where his body is laid, and then they go and make sure that they have the proper spices for burial. Like I I mean, half the time I can't get myself to the grocery store sometimes when I'm depressed, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let alone like watching this and so I think and I hope that doesn't feel flippant to people but I think it's like putting myself in the shoes of a much smaller experience um and then saying like oh my gosh their devotion to Jesus actually led them to something in the midst of their heartbreak that they were moved to say we he's worthy of us moving um in the midst of this to receive a proper and honorable burial uh, and I think that's so important that God takes note of that that God sees uh what would be so dismissed I mean I just think of how many times we've pointed out that some of the roles that women do play in the church and in the world are so easily dismissed and yet you know I in some ways this is them doing somewhat traditional female tasks going to like prepare the spices but the lord makes sure that he keeps track of that and i think that's so powerful and um yeah i think that's really special um i also think i we don't we're not gonna be in mark very much but in mark when it talks about the resurrection in uh chapter 16 verse 8 it says that they went out 
and fled from the tomb once they see that the body is not there. And it says for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And the words that I don't know why they're translated this way, but the words there are actually in trauma and ecstasy. Hmm. And so this like kind of paradox of experiencing both of those things. But I think just to your point, Heather, I think the Lord takes note of their, the trauma that they've experienced and kind of categorizes it as that to then go to the tomb and see it empty at first, I think would be a really both traumatic and hope-filled kind of ecstatic experience. And so I think it's so powerful that that's the words that are used in, in Mark. Um, and yeah, that that had been a part of their story to the point where I think the Lord keeps record of that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, let's look at, um, at the resurrection story. So, um, the women continue on in the story. And so they rest on the Sabbath. Actually, I think that's important. I don't want to, um, move too far past that. Cause I think, I think we've all experienced those moments where actually the hardest thing to do in your life is rest and where it would be so much easier. Like you would feel more fulfilled, even if you're not actually doing something that important, I think it would be easier to do something. And so I actually think it's very powerful that the women go through this intentional movement towards the, the spices and then they rest on the Sabbath because I, I just can't imagine how difficult that would have been, um, to, to honor the Sabbath in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And truly, if any of y'all have ever dug into teachings about the Sabbath in the old Testament, both the Sabbath day and in Leviticus 25, the Sabbath year of the year of Jubilee, the core of God's command to rest is physical rest but really the core of it is trust of can you trust that god is caring for you when you are resting can you trust that everything doesn't rest on your shoulders that your destiny is not actually dictated by you and your ability to just work constantly (laughs) Um, but that you're stepping back in order to remind yourself that god is on the throne that you are not the Lord of your own life, that God is your true King and true provider. And so I think that's really, mm-hmm. and a super important moment for them to lean into that of God is on the throne. We don't understand this. We're deeply hurt and traumatized and in profound pain. And we're going to rest before the Lord in a posture of trust. And I, you know, I'm sure that wasn't coming easily and maybe they were grumpy about it and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's okay to be like grumpy about God putting you in a position where you're kind of forced (laughs) to trust him and be like, God, it's true this. (laughs) I don't feel this right now. Um, But that, yeah, that that was an invitation. I think God was offering to them and to any believers at the time and still now I hadn't thought about that of that Easter Saturday. We, we talk about it being the Sabbath, but we don't talk about what did the Sabbath mean? What's it meant to convey mm-hmm. that it's trusting that God is at work, even when we are powerless. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I think that's a really powerful kind of new insight I'm getting right now of what it looks like to rest and trust when everything feels wrong. And Mm -hmm. when everything feels like it's in shambles and in complete disaster. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's two refrains about the Sabbath in the Old Testament that they would basically trust. And that the other thing is that they would remember that he's the God who led them out of Egypt where they never got to stop working, where they were always a slave. And so part of it for them in their rest is to remember God as their liberator. And so I just wonder, yeah, like what that kind of probably a skeptical hope of that experience was for them in that moment of really in that moment, God had liberated them in some ways beyond their imagination. 
Um, and that had not fully settled in for them. And so I wonder like what it was like for them to maybe recite some of those passages on that Sabbath day, remembering that he is the liberator and kind of remembering just the core of their Sabbath in the midst of their tremendous heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm making a mental note to myself and I would encourage the same for y'all next Easter, maybe on Easter Saturday, maybe spend some time in Leviticus 25 or Mm -hmm. any of the other passages about Sabbath and see, yeah, just see what the Lord brings to the surface for you. Hmm. That's good. Um, so the women are the last at the cross and the first to the tomb, as we'll see, as we read. So we're going to read, um, from two different places just to get kind of two different parts of the story. So we're going to start in Luke 24 verses one through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we, we see these names. And again, if you want to do like a little cross-reference, a lot of these are the names that are referenced in Luke 8 of the women who were um, supporting Jesus's ministry, who were following him. So we know that they have been a significant part of the ministry. Um, but we also see so clearly that the male disciples did not believe them. These words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Like there's no, there's no questioning. Like maybe they were a little skeptical. It just was like, nope, cannot be not at all. Um, and I think it's important to get that, that part, that reality that the women were not believed. Um, and we'll see later, like Jesus's approach to that, but, um, there's, there's reason that these men didn't believe them in the time period here, a woman's testimony was not even taken as valid in court. And so the fact that Jesus wanted these women to be the ones to be a witness and be the testimony of his resurrection is so powerful. And I think, um, yeah, so we see why these men don't believe them. And we also see that Jesus chose a different path than what would kind of make sense in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think John kind of makes it clear that Mary is the one who is doing this in some ways. And so we'll, um, we'll unpack this part of the story and then kind of knit these passages together. So in John, where it's talking about the, the woman finding the empty tomb, um, it goes on that the disciples went back to their homes kind of in awe. Uh, but Mary stands there cause she just, she's struck. She can't, she can't get home that fast. Um, <laughs> so we pick up in John 20 verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. 
and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have taken him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Uh, this is so, such a picture of their friendship that Jesus says her name and she suddenly is like, um, you know, sees him in his resurrected form and probably the combination of a resurrected body being just slightly different um, and also not expecting it to be Jesus. She's like, you know, thinks it's the gardener. And then once he says her name, she is able to hear like, oh, I know who that is. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've referenced the Jesus storybook Bible before on the podcast, but um, I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this because she uses the phrase that when Mary heard that she knew because no one says her name like that mm. and I think it just draws out that experience of what Mary is knowing in that moment like oh gosh because he says her name and in that moment everything changes and she realizes what's happening and I think it again like it's important for us to see the systemic aspects of what's happening here, but I don't want us to lose the intimacy of this moment that Jesus is meeting his friend. And I think so often as people who often have, you know, difficulty reconciling this aspect of Jesus having female disciples and friends of Jesus who would have been following him, it it's powerful to think about that, that Jesus just meets this woman who, like you said, has been traumatized. And in a moment, she hears her voice um, coming and it, it sounds unlike any other way that she hears her name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I so appreciate the way that she's also modeling healthy grief and healthy expression of emotion because when the other disciples just kind of spring into action mode and take off again of like, what does this mean? You're like, they just hit the road immediately. She is waiting at the tomb and she's grieving in just her sadness and confusion, I'm sure. And that it's in the act of being present with her own emotions and with her own experience that she is able to meet and encounter Christ in a different way. And so I think that's also this really beautiful encouragement for women where we are often accused of being emotional <laughs> and that that's seen as a liability and that you could have, this passage could have gone a different way. And it could have been like, oh, because the disciples were willing to like quickly spring into action, <laughs> then they like encounter Christ along the way as they're doing stuff for him or something like that, but that's not how Jesus chooses to engage with them and their different reactions that he chooses Mary in her stillness and like, and so in some ways probably paralysis and that that's okay. That I bet there's part of her that is just sort of paralyzed by grief and everything just catching up with her from this whole intense traumatic weekend that she's been living through. And it's in her willingness to just be at the tomb where she last knew Jesus was and to grieve over everything that's happening and not run or suppress her emotions 
that then Jesus is present with her. So I think that's also an invitation from Christ for us. And like, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be present in our emotions. And this is true for men and women that we don't have to act like our traumas haven't happened or that our emotions aren't real and that it's actually more in the act of naming those things and allowing them to just like come out mm-hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better um, description that Christ is actually more present with us in that place than he can be when we're just suppressing and numb and distracted. So I hope that this is also encouragement to people who have perhaps lived through some pretty big losses, maybe some pretty big traumas. And I think especially about brothers and sisters around the world who have perhaps been in war situations, have perhaps literally seen their family members killed in front of them, or anyone in the United States who has had that experience. Mm -hmm. I think this is an invitation from Jesus, if you've been through profound trauma, to grieve and Mm -hmm. ask him to join you and, yeah, bring healing and the hope of the resurrection in the midst of that grief. Mm. that's so good Heather because I think so often we hear this once again kind of with that contemptuous sound like we hear the angels saying like why do you look for the living among the dead haha <laughs> dum-dums like, I feel like that's like what we think they're saying yes. meanwhile we we can get that that's not their tone because Jesus isn't like Mary he, like you hear him yeah. saying with such compassion and like that it makes her run to Jesus um, in that way. And so I think it's another moment for us to sit with even the ways that we have read contempt into the story that's not there. Um, Cause I think we, we do that even for their grief at times, like that we read that into the angel's tone um, in a way that I don't think is accurate. And I think there's so much, here where we see Jesus instead just meeting Mary with the sound of her name um and that there's something so powerful about that that he's not saying um he's you know having a powerful theological conversation after that about his ascension and what he's about to do but he he doesn't start there he instead just meets her and says her name so she knows what's happening um and I think that points to all that you're saying of Jesus affirming her in her grief. So Jesus does have a theological conversation with her though. Jesus says, I'm ascending. I'm going to the father. I'm going to my God and your God, um, that he is affirming her, um, in that way. And then he says that he wants her to be the one to tell the other disciples. And I think, Uh, Once again, it would be super easy to miss this. Um, In verse 18 in John, it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Mm. I think that's really intentional language because that's basically apostolic language that the early apostles were identified as the ones who were sent, sent ones. So Jesus sends her um, and that they have seen the resurrected Christ. And so she's the first one to say that. And that announcing is very like even evangelism, like she's an evangelist in that moment and she's an apostle in that moment by announcing the good news that Jesus is resurrected and that she has seen him. Um, And N.T. Wright actually proposes that Mary is apostle to the apostles in this way, that Mm -hmm. Jesus sending her to the disciples to share what she has seen is basically Jesus making her an apostle to the apostles. So if you have a problem with that, take it up with NT, right? Not, not us. Uh, But I think, I think there's so much there that Jesus is asking her to be the one to say this profound theological statement that he is resurrected, that he is ascending and that he is, in that way, kind of announcing this new era of the kingdom. Um, And so he, like you said, meets her in the midst of her grief that he isn't, you know, 
maybe meeting the doers in that way, but he's Mm -hmm. meeting the one who is just sitting there and in that way affirms her dignity too, by saying like he meets her in that moment. And then he sends her with a profound theological statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's super interesting to think about. Yeah. And I think again, would have been a little bit of a wake up call is maybe too strong of a term for the disciples, but I think would have been a surprise that they could have been like, we were just there. Why didn't he appear to Mm -hmm. us? We were there. What, what gives? And so I think it, I think it's interesting. And to me, I think is a little bit pointed, um, that Jesus doesn't just like appear to all of them all together and that Mary gets to have this really distinct and unique experience that then is first before the rest of of the disciples. And so, yeah, that's just standing out to me right now that that's intentional. Jesus, there's no reason why he couldn't or didn't Mm -hmm. appear to all of them other than like he just chose not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually see just so consistently that the first are reserved for women in Jesus's story in some ways. So we see that starting with Mary in the announcement from the angel. And then we see it here with, um, with a different Mary um, in the announcement of Jesus's resurrection. And, um, and of course, Jesus does appear to other disciples after this and has profound exchanges with um, a lot of them. So it's not that he only chose women, but it, mm-hmm. it is clear that Jesus chose women in um, a profound way that they were the first and in a time period when it actually made no sense in, in kind of a, a logical way for him to do that. And I think it's important to name also that in one of those encounters with um, the resurrected Jesus that he does rebuke the disciples for not believing the women that in Mark 16, we see that moment where he is appearing to several of them. And, um, and he says that he is, he's like, and you did not believe the women. Um, and he specifically names it as that. And so I think that's really important that he is, we don't see him doing that with even Peter really like Peter who um denies him in a way that we often know that story he doesn't rebuke Peter he invites him into love but what he does rebuke them for is um their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen Mm. so it's like that I can think of at least the only time that we see Jesus rebuking after his resurrection is in that case for not believing the women. And I, I think that's important. Um, and I think points to this theme of what he's doing in the midst of this resurrection story. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And I, I hope that that is a good word to women or probably anyone anyone who's been in a marginalized group who has raised abuses of any kind and have not been believed. So certainly for women and children who have been abused in church contexts and where their abuse was denied and systematically covered up. And I would say too, for any people of color and women of color, especially who have taken risks to voice where they're being harmed, where they're being marginalized certainly in the church and in society and have not been believed and have been dismissed and maligned as a result of that and obviously this about jesus resurrection is something very specific about jesus to start with but i also do think it gives offers a good word for those who have had perhaps similar experiences of sharing something really important that they know to be true that has been dismissed and degraded by their brothers and and brothers and sisters that Jesus takes that really seriously. And was like, you need to believe people who tell you the truth Mm -hmm. and not dismiss it because it doesn't fit 
your expectations or your assumptions. I think that's part of why I love that language and Luke that it seemed like an idle tale to them. Mm -hmm. I think that can be so true of like, particularly in spiritual abuse situations um, where people want to so believe something else about that person that it seems to them an idle tale. Um, But that Jesus actually says that's a hardness of heart issue for them to, to see it in that way. And I think, I think that's a really profound, like indictment for us to consider what ways our hearts are hardened to hear particular kinds of stories, um, whether it's stories of people of color or stories of women in abuse or um, stories about maybe specifically spiritual leaders, I think. Um, but I think there's something there that's so significant about that tying of a hardness of heart to the fact that then we perceive it as an idle tale. Like we can't even imagine it because our hearts have been hardened to even receive what's true. Mm -hmm. So this has been really, really profound. I think um, one thing I want to highlight is that so often, I think in part because we do kind of dislocate all of these pieces from the larger narrative of this whole passion story. Um, But also, I think we just kind of see this as part of like Jesus's kind of hippie persona of like, ooh, he's like, this is like the nice, like, ooh, radical one. Um, and we don't knit that with like the sovereignty of Jesus. And we don't actually see it as Jesus is telling a very intentional story here. And so he is that revolutionary. He is the one who is liberating women um, in this story. But it's very purposeful. It's very strategic and intentional. And it's clearly not by happenstance that it just continued so much within this story. And I think this is a really strategic thing that Jesus is doing to announce that there's a new era of the kingdom here. Like this is a new creation that's happening. And in the new creation, there's something different that there's, it unhinges the power of patriarchy. It kind of does this new thing. And Jesus is making it very clear what the role of women will be in this new era of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good. And yeah, again, is more than just Jesus using women as a means to an end of I'm going to create an air, an airtight apologetic for why I mm-hmm. truly raised from the dead so that no one can poke holes in it that he's obviously meeting these women in very personal, caring, loving ways that show he cares about them, loves about them, wants to empower them, sees them as having a shared future in his church. And so I love that. I think you've done a great job of drawing that out today, Jamie, of this is not just Jesus using women for a future apologetic this is the heart of who Jesus is, the heart of who God is, and the foundation of the church moving forward. Yeah. And I think it, it points to the reality of the resurrection, that the resurrection is the power over death and the oppression of people is death. Like that is a part of the power of death in the world. And so Jesus is saying, that in the midst of the hope of the resurrection is hope for the oppressed. And so he's going to make sure that he illustrates that. Um, It's the same way that he did everything in the kingdom, that he taught about it and he demonstrated it. And so now he's revealing the hope of the resurrection by declaring it in this theological statement to Mary, but then demonstrating it by saying, this is a hope for the oppressed people, including and particularly women. So good, Jamie. I love this. I hope that this has helped y'all see these stories with fresh eyes and thinking about the ways that Jesus meets women in our authority and in our calling to have meaningful roles in the church and that he meets men and women in places of pain and trauma and places of having been marginalized by those in power and that his call 
is to believe us, to heal us, and to call us into the hope of death and sin being defeated forever. So we are so thankful that y'all dug in with us today. We have a new way for you to support the podcast on Patreon, and the link will be in the show notes. This is a really helpful way to support our work and help us continue to create meaningful content. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. If you're able to share on social media, you can follow us at Excavate Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. We always love to connect with you and hear how you're finding your place being continually uncovered. So thanks for joining us today. Let's dig in again soon.